Hello, I'm Amy Mullins and you're listening to the Uncommon Sense Podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show aired between 9am and 12pm on a Tuesday on 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. We had four guests on January the 24th and they will be played in just a moment. Ben Altham came in to talk to us about federal politics. Then we spoke with Amber Jamison all the way from New York to talk about Donald Trump's inauguration and his first few days in office as President of the United States. Then we had an in-depth chat with Leslie Harding, curator at the Heidi Museum of Modern Art, which uh, has an exhibition on at the moment called Making Modernism, featuring three pioneering artists, Georgia O'Keeffe, Margaret Preston and Grace Cossington-Smith. It's really an excellent, excellent exhibition and I hope you enjoy that interview. And last but not least, we had Mark Wakeham, who is a CEO of Environment Victoria, and he came in to talk about the EPA and the reforms that the state government has announced uh, in regards to the EPA and the protection of not only um, humans and uh, the impact that we have on the environment and the way that that affects us, but also looking at the flora and fauna and the importance of protecting that. So please um, enjoy and uh, look forward to seeing you on the next podcast. You're listening to Uncommon Sense on Triple R. And uh, I've got with me right now in the studio, Ben Eltham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent at New Matilda and is a regular and uh, very special commentator on federal politics. We're very lucky to have him with us now. Hi, Ben. I'm blushing a bit now, Amy. That's uh, <laughs> that's way too much of an intro. Uh, I like to praise up my guests, get them all G'd up and ready to go. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Well, you know, it's a new year, 2017. We must all get enthusiastic. Absolutely. And I mean, Parliament hasn't started yet, so we still have a bit of a honeymoon period, don't we? Well, you and I might have a honeymoon period because it certainly won't be the Turnbull government having a honeymoon. Certainly not. And uh, going straight to the lack of a honeymoon, Ben, um, we first spoke last week about the Centrelink issue and the debt collectors that are coming after people because this, a system, an algorithm says that they have a debt owing to Centrelink. Um, where are we up to with that? That's still going on and I think still very much a, a major, major issue that the coalition refuses to address. So um, we've had a few new developments on that front over the last week or so. Um, we found out that, um, for example, the coalition... Um, in terms of what it's doing with the policy there is ploughing ahead so that they're continuing to deny that there's a problem. We've also had a bit of news that out um, from Christopher Naus, who's been doing some really good journalism on this at The Guardian, uh, which is that the average length of time it takes to resolve one of these debt issues is 49 days. Now, of course, you're only given 28 days by Centrelink uh, to resolve your debt. So um, it's an admission by Centrelink and by the Department of Human Services that really that they are being flooded, overwhelmed really by uh, the, the number of people who are contesting these robo-debt claims. And I mean, how many do we know um, are actually false or is there a percentage or an estimate? Yes, we think it could be 20%. It could be more than 20% according to certain information that's come to light. And also, uh, you know, it depends who you believe, the department itself, which is a scary figure. The fact that they would admit that it would be 20% of these claims are in error is remarkable, one-fifth. Uh, but 
you know, whistleblowers inside Centrelink, um, a number of them have now talked to the media, including one who's talked to me. They say the, the true figure is much, much higher than that. Right. And we did see um, a release of a letter, which was about eight pages long from one whistleblower, which was published in Fairfax and The Guardian, I think. And um, did that tend to bring to light anything new? Uh, that, that brought to light just uh, how egregious this system is. So uh, there's a clear direction from the minister and from the top management at Centrelink to tell the Centrelink staff, the frontline staff, basically not to try and address these claims, to try and uh, sideline clients or to try and shunt them aside, to not take their complaints seriously. I mean, I think it shows just what a dysfunctional culture is inside Centrelink. Um, and really, I, I mean, I think it's morally and maybe even legally dubious what's going on here in this federal department. Yeah, and I mean, it must take a toll on not only the Centrelink staff themselves who are on the front line dealing with this issue, but also obviously Centrelink clients. What? How do you think this is going to reach a tipping point? When's that going to happen, if at all? Oh, it definitely has reached a tipping point. You know, I, I think the, what's going on here is outrageous and possibly one of the largest scandals in public administration in Australia in many years. Um, we'll be, we'll, this will run and run, you know. We'll see more and more about this. Uh, as I said last week, the government plans to send out 1.7 million of these robo-debt notices. Um, a Senate inquiry will almost certainly happen when Parliament resumes. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised down the track if there's a Royal Commission into this. Uh, you know, uh, we've seen Royal Commissions in the past into this kind of mismanagement. Uh, you remember the Pink Bats affair under the, the Rudd and Gillard governments. Uh, you know, I think this is the sort of level of dysfunction that we're talking about here. Mm. And when we spoke about it last week, we did get quite a few people calling in um, talking about how they've been affected. And uh, one of the people mentioned the importance of having your payslip history um, on hand. And if you don't, to, to go get that from your employer, um, you know, preemptively to make sure you do have it just in case, because that was one of the ways that they were man able to successfully contest their, their debt, but then still had to pay, start paying the debt that they now don't owe and will somehow be paid it back. Yeah, that's right. And as we said last week, the onus of proof has been completely reversed here. So it's all on the client to prove that they haven't done something wrong. Um, and of course, there are a whole bunch of people that can't get their old pay slips. Their employer might have gone broke or ceased to trade. Um, in that case, you know, what are they meant to do? Um, Centrelink itself advises clients only to, to take pay slips from the last six months. And yet we know for a fact that these debt notices are being issued for up to six years ago. So, you know, there's a level of... Um, malice really in the way that the government's doing this and and as I said last week I think it, it underlies an ideology really of, of anti-welfareism of the fact that um, if you're unlucky enough to be receiving Centrelink benefits because of your life circumstances then it's it's probably your fault and it's really the onus is on the government to try and wring every last cent out of every individual who happens to be claiming a benefit. Yeah and this kind of negative attitude towards you know a huge actual section of our population is really a continuation of what Tony Abbott started in the 2014 budget, which was looking at um, delaying welfare for people who wanted to get on to New Start or needed to, because no one really wants to get on to New Start. Um, you know, Turnbull came in with this whole uh, fresh ideas, innovation, agility. We're all, you know, this is the best of time to be an Australian. And now we've got this really um, negative and uh, concerning approach to the way that we treat our population. 
is there really any difference between the Turnbull and Abbott governments? No, I don't think in policy terms there's a lot of difference between the Turnbull and the Abbott governments. I mean, it's hard to name a policy of Malcolm Turnbull's that's particularly different from Tony Abbott's. Uh, let's look at the big picture issues on climate. Turnbull is just as anti-climate as, as Abbott. Um, if you look at um, taxation and, and welfare and things like that, he's, he's certainly just as conservative. Um, it's, it's actually hard to nominate an area of policy in which Turnbull has moved uh, the coalition government towards the centre. I mean, it remains a reasonably far-right government in many aspects of its policies. Absolutely. And one of the things that they've come out and touted as their great success success is a number of their trade deals, their bilateral trade deals. Um, You know, we've got this whole discussion about the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, because Donald Trump, the uh, now President of the United States, will not proceed with that that agreement. And that's a pretty big player in the TPP. And at the time, uh, Labor and the Liberal Party have been bipartisan on supporting the TPP. Um, Has Labor moved away from the TPP? Labor's always been a little bit um, lukewarm about the TPP. Even, you know, last year when it, when the, it looked as though Obama would ratify it, uh, Labor was, was pretty hesitant on certain aspects of the TPP, particularly on uh, labour issues, so um, the ability of the TPP to give companies the right to bring in foreign workers. Labor always opposed that. Um, now that Trump has walked away from the TPP, I think Labor are cock hoot because they can now uh, pretty much oppose the TPP with, without any issues there because, let's face it, the TPP is dead. It's not coming back. It's, it's never re-emerging, I don't think, under a Trump pre- presidency. Um, what we're going to have to do now if we want to keep doing free trade is uh, to negotiate bilateral deals, which this government's been doing anyway. Well, that's fine, but the thing that we know about bilateral trade deals is they don't really create that much extra wealth. You know, they don't really grow the economy that much. I mean, we've got a free trade deal with America already. We've got a free trade deal with China already. That's if you think these are indeed free trade deals and in inverted commas. They're really preferential trade negotiations. So, I mean, yeah, there's incremental gains to be made there, but I don't think anyone, certainly no mainstream economists think that, you know, a, a patchwork quilt of bilateral trade deals will make a huge difference to Australia's trading relationships. Yeah. And Steve Chobo has been um, on the radio this morning talking about how uh, the TPP will not be dead. We'll have 12 minus one, which is a new kind of term <laughs> for the TPP. That's 11, isn't it, Amy? I think it might be. But it's we'll good have to, to see a minister who can count. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, you would really think that the US, it's a deal breaker. We can't really go on talking about this like it's an actually realistic deal, but perhaps it's just a way of retreating with dignity left. Yeah, I mean, this government continues to push trade as pretty much one of its main economic agendas, along with the corporate tax cuts. So I guess it's got to keep going on that. Uh, but it's hard to nominate, like, too much benefit to Australia of, of continuing on with the TPP. Um, I guess the National Party want to bang on about opening up markets to Australian beef and the usual things that they do. Um, but, you know, in the bigger picture, like, the, the problems in the Australian economy are domestic. They're not in international. So the real issues that the government is failing to address is our weak labour market. You know, unemployment is... Uh, 
you know, it's reasonably high for a, an industrialised country, particularly compared to some of our trading partners, and that's because the Australian economy is reasonably weak. Um, and I don't think a, a trade deal, uh, particularly of the US out of it, is going to make any difference to that. Yeah, and one of the issues that's recently reached a real tipping point in Melbourne in particular is this issue of housing affordability, um, because as we've seen in the newspapers, uh, the homelessness issue has become um, really visible on the streets of Melbourne. Um, and the, the solution of Scott Morrison is apparently that it's a supply issue and we just need state governments to open up more land to uh, for people to then build houses. Really, like, what is the, the this philosophy or approach of the Liberals to economic policy? It seems to be very haphazard and not necessarily grounded in fact. Yeah, in terms of housing affordability, neither major party has... Uh, a handle on it. I mean, we're talking about a generational issue. It's it's a problem that's really taken 20 or 30 years to develop. And now it's reached crisis point, you know, where, where we've actually seen the re-emergence of shanty towns in major Australian cities. Now, there's a reason for that, and that's because housing is so expensive. The people on Centrelink benefits, that's when they're not being monstered by Centrelink, um, they, they can't afford to rent a place. I mean, if, to get a one-bedroom flat, even in a far outer suburb in, a, in an Australian major city, it's going to cost you $200, $250 a week. That's way more than any government benefit pays. Um, and it's going to put extreme pressure even on people on the minimum wage. So we have a huge problem in Australian society around housing affordability. Uh, the government certainly has a policy of just pretending it's not a policy. I mean, the government had an inquiry into housing affordability last year. The committee came back and made no recommendations. So that's the government's view on housing affordability. Nothing to see here. Amazing. Truly amazing. And I just wonder when we'll actually get somewhere. I mean, Labor was trying to, in the election, you know, wedge the Liberals on this whole issue of negative gearing and capital gains, which, you know, was somewhat effective, but they haven't really continued to prosecute negative gearing too hardly. Um, are they waiting for, you know, things to pick up in this year? What do you think Labor's strategy is on this? I mean, Labor has retained its policy of winding back negative gearing, but even that policy was very incremental. I mean, they grandfathered all existing investments so that if you already had an investment property that was negatively geared, you would continue to receive that tax break. Well, that's not a particularly brave policy. I mean, let's call it what it is. Negative gearing is a big tax concession. It's basically a subsidy paid by you and I, the taxpayer, to property investors. Um, now, if you think that that's a good idea because it will increase the supply of housing, then that's one way to justify it. But the data says no. The data says that this doesn't actually increase the housing supply. 93% of all investment properties are already existing. They're not new ones that are being built uh, brand new to, to help housing supply. So it's nothing more really than a tax break for rich people, um, which of course explains why the Liberal Party is very keen on it. Absolutely. And uh, and we did see that uh, Malcolm Turnbull's been out and about with his friends, including Rupert Murdoch on the weekend. Well, with friends like that, who needs enemies, hey? Exactly. <laughs> um, I wouldn't necessarily be whining and dining with Rupert Murdoch if I was Malcolm Turnbull, considering the pasting that he's copying in the Murdoch tabloids at the moment. But perhaps uh, that's the nature of hostage negotiations. You've got to stay close to the people that control your fate. So, um, yeah, I mean, Turnbull is he's walking a bit of a tightrope in 2017. He badly needs to get ahead in the polls again, or leadership speculation is going to continue and it's going to destabilise the 
government if it is not already. Yeah, and I mean, Tony Abbott is still coming out and we've saw, seen him on Twitter, actually, in response to the cabinet reshuffle that we saw. So um, for people who might have missed it, Susan Lee, uh, she resigned as Minister for Health due to the um, entitlements issue, which was really quite uh, surprising and shocking, went on for about nearly two weeks, I think, until that was firmly knocked on its head. And then we had uh, Greg Hunt move in now as Minister for Health and Sport. And then uh, Arthur Sinodinus is back in Cabinet as a Minister. He'll be Minister for Industry, Innovation and Science. And uh, yeah, it was quite interesting. Tony Abbott uh, said in response to Malcolm Turnbull's press release, which said um, Cabinet processes have now been restored so Arthur Sinodinus can move away from the Cabinet Secretary role. Uh, We saw Abbott come out saying, just so you know, uh, Cabinet processes were always in place when I was Prime Minister. This kind of uh, back to and fro that is very public between the leaders, it seems like it's going to continue. Do you think Tony Abbott actually does have a shot at this? No, not at the moment because uh, clearly he doesn't have the numbers to move on Malcolm Turnbull factionally. Uh, But neither does Turnbull have the support within his own party to banish Tony Abbott or to get the conservative wing of the party to shut up. In fact, you could argue that the conservative wing of the Liberal Party is really the tail wagging the dog, that despite the fact that the moderates are nominally in charge, um, it's clearly the conservatives that are dominating the policy agenda. So, yeah, we did see the cabinet reshuffle. We saw Greg Hunt promoted to health. And after his tenure as environment minister, a lot of of people (laughs) have been worried about what will happen in health with Greg Hunt in there. Um, I mean, he's he's shown himself to be a good media performer, but to have a very sketchy view on policy. So he's not very good on the details of policy. And that's going to be very challenging in health because health is the coalition's weak spot, as we saw in the election campaign with Labor mounting a very effective campaign on Medicare. Um, and really, the reason Labor's campaign was effective was because of all the cuts that the coalition had made to health funding. And that was the the sort of substance to to Labor's attack and the reason why its scare campaign was able to gain traction in the electorate. And that's a big problem for Hunt and indeed Malcolm Turnbull because unless the coalition actually commits to turning around some of these big funding cuts to... I mean, the the most obvious one is the freeze on the rebates to GPs, but that's just a part of the funding cuts to health over the last few years. So a big challenge for Greg Hunt. And as you mentioned, Arthur Sinodinus uh, is back in the, as a cabinet minister. He's been a, a cabinet secretary all along since the ICAC cleared him a couple of years ago from a corruption scare. So um, he's back in the cabinet as a minister and a public servant will now be the cabinet secretary. Um, I don't place too much... Cr- um, credence on this kind of idea of cabinet government because let's face it the prime minister does decide most policy in australia it's a pretty hierarchical system uh, but it, it was certainly the case that synodinus was keeping the cabinet running reasonably smoothly so it'll be interesting to see if we see more leaks um, now that synodinus is not sort of in charge of the cabinet process yeah well potentially he may have been keeping some of the conservatives in check though i'm not sure how much of a good job he was doing if that was the case well most of the 
important conservatives are not in the cabinet. So I don't know how you keep them in check. I don't, no. You can't really keep Erica Betts in check, for example. He tends to say whatever he thinks. Mm, that is very true. But we have seen uh, Matt Canavan come out, uh, the resources minister, talking about this idea of, and I'll have to check my notes for this, an ultra super critical power plant, which seems to be um, some kind of thought bubble that we're now floating about replacing old, dirty coal-fired power plants with new, less dirty coal-fired power plants. What on earth, um, you know, is this and is it just a kind of holiday um, escapade? Um, This is just the latest instance of the clean coal dream, you know, the idea that we can one day burn coal and it won't be bad for the environment. Um, It's been an idea that's been around for a long time. It's never worked you know, the idea that uh, power companies will build new coal plants, I think, is a fantasy. And I, I think anyone who's looked at the energy industry closely knows that. The cheapest form of new build power now is wind and solar. And that's just a fact. That's a fact of economics, not of climate science. And so whatever the government likes to say about this kind of stuff um, doesn't make it true. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't expect to see any new ultra super critical coal plants built in Australia over the next decade. Hopefully not, just to save us from having to say that name multiple times a day. <laughs> it's a good DJ name, maybe. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. DJ ultra super critical <laughs> coming at you. <laughs> I'll leave that one for you, Ben. I think that could be your new name. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming in and chatting with us, Ben. Thanks, Amy. Uh, Right now, I have with me all the way from New York, I have Amber Jamison. She is a reporter at The Guardian US and uh, has been dealing with uh, the many ups and downs of Trump's inauguration and his first few days in office. And I'm very interested and excited to be speaking with her. Hi, Amber. Hi, Amy. How are you going? Good, thank you. How are you? Good. Exhausted, but good. Yes, trying to recover. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So, um, as we would know over here in Australia, we saw a lot of coverage about uh, the inauguration and there's a a little bit of a skirmish in terms of um, protesters and uh, some of the, what you'd call inverted commas, alt-right that were around. We saw an ABC reporter interviewing someone who was then... um, punched in the face uh, live on air mm-hmm. when that interview was happening. But it seemed to be fairly um, low level in terms of the numbers of people who were doing that. Absolutely. Um, these also, those rallies took um, place in DC, just not very far away from um, where the inauguration parade was taking place. Um, that evening, that was the Friday uh, in New York, There were also huge protests on the streets of New York and our newsroom is on the 23rd floor and we could actually hear people. We could hear the the rally um, outside the building. You could see hundreds of people um, all rallying down the street, down Broadway um, and chanting, but there was no violence or anything like that in in New York or any of the other rallies on Inauguration Day. And then the Women's March, which I know Melbourne had a huge, great turnout for, um, including my baby nephew, but... The, the Women's March they had, you know, literally millions of people um, across the country and there were no arrests or no um, police instances whatsoever at those huge peaceful protests. 
That's quite phenomenal, really, to have a protest where there's not even any uh, kind of incident at all. So just goes to show that uh, if women are ruling the world, we might have a better way of doing things. Um, and you're absolutely right. In Melbourne, we had, I think it was about 2,000 people um, gather at the State Library and then march up to Parliament House. Yeah, it's, it's, it was really quite amazing to watch them happening all over the world. I was curating the um, the Guardian's live blog covering the, the rallies and the marches around the world and around the country. And you were seeing, you know, people in Antarctica. You were seeing, I was getting tweets from little, like someone from Springfield, Missouri, and there's a couple of thousand people in the town square. And so from all these little towns um, all across the world and all across, um, all across the U.S., um, and everyone really came out in force. It was an incredibly sort of strong uh, show on the day after a president is inaugurated. It's a pretty historic event uh, to have any sort of protest of that scale. There were some protests when George Bush was inaugurated, nothing even remotely in the scale of millions of people coming out. No, and it's funny you mentioned George Bush um, because I'm a bit of a fan of Saturday Night Live and uh, Aziz Ansari, who uh, hosted that show on Saturday, had a great opening monologue talking about um, many things, particularly the race issue um, in America with Trump and uh, his policies that will definitely affect if they're implemented, um, you know, the multicultural nation of America, Um, but also that he mentions George Bush and how now he almost seems like this amazing, visionary, inclusive leader. Well, yeah, because he did give this speech, it was shortly after 9-11 when he spoke very powerfully um, about, you know, know, that that Muslim people are not to to blame for um, examples of terrorism. And that is not the sort of thing that we have seen coming from Donald Trump. He has been someone who's called for a ban on Muslims or a Muslim registry. Um, So it's a really strong difference where, you know, a a president who many people would have seen as, and who is seen still, you know, um, as very conservative and someone who wouldn't expect a lot of progressives to be a fan of. There are certain moments where it now is so strong, the difference that we have with Donald Trump Trump in charge, that his attitudes are not normal, even for Republican presidents. This is a not a normal sort of way that he speaks um, about immigration, about religion, um, and about multiculturalism in the US. Absolutely, and it goes to show that um, that this whole movement of populism and nationalism has reached a point um, of absurdity to some levels and uh, and certainly it's concerning for the rest of the world now um, to see that uh, Donald Trump is um, you know a role model in some ways to other people and he kind of sets the standard um, of behavior and unfortunately that is a very um, you know questionable standard indeed and uh, yeah, it's just, it's still surprising to believe, actually, that he what? put his hand on the Bible and was sworn in, actually. I, it, was, it was truly quite amazing to watch. It was sort of one of those moments where I was like, I had, you know, I, I just genuinely thought, oh, I didn't think we would get to this day, partly because I sort of thought at this stage it would probably be Mike Pence being sworn in after um, <laughs> on the um, election. I kind of expected that there would be something, whether it be the Russia thing, whether it be the Trump's business, that this would have been something that, that kept him apart. Um, kept him from actually doing the swearing in. And the press conference we saw by um, Trump spokesperson Sean Spicer the day of the Women's March, um, when he came out and he... The press conference, he did not answer questions. He just gave a statement. He was incredibly aggressive to the media. Um, you know, accused them of lying, uh, accused them of 
of um, deliberately false reporting, quote, and, you know, said, quote, we're going to hold the press accountable um, because he didn't believe that... It was essentially around the, the size of the inauguration crowds and he didn't believe that was being accurately reported. And, you know, it, this, it did, that is not something that you would normally see in the US as a country that literally has freedom of speech in its constitution. It, it's, that's very highly regarded and upheld. Um, and so this idea that you're now having the president um, lecturing and saying we're going to hold the press accountable and that accusing journalists of lying repeatedly. He said that the, you know, the attempts to lessen the enthusiasm of the inauguration are shameful and wrong. You will often see criticism between, obviously, government and the press. That's a pretty normal sort of, you know, push and pull relationship. Um, but it's been a much tougher and that sort of first press conference really set the tone there's been that was a real shock to many um journalists and, and media um that that is going to be this sort of very incredibly aggressive um sort of tone given out you know almost sort of as one of our reporters mentioned when he came out of the press conference he said that was like one of his reporting in zimbabwe like it was this very aggressive um style of speaking to the to the public and to the media yeah, it was shocking and he was palpably angry when you watch back the footage. Um, but the press certainly responded in a very strong way, in an honourable way, um, by coming out, you know, on Twitter and in their news articles to say, actually, um, you know, the media has been accused for accurately reporting um, the turnout and figures at the inauguration. Um, and, you know, CNN was out there, um, you know, pushing that line very strongly. And it, it is true. Um, that it has been accurately reported in the media. Um, and uh, we had this to and fro about uh, whether there used to be coverings on the grass which uh, were white and then made it look like the inauguration wasn't well attended compared to Obama's. Um, you know, this kind and of... The, and then Trump was obsessed with the ratings. Like, Trump came out being like, well, more people watched it, which sort of made you think, like, of course, a reality television star cares about TV ratings. Yeah. And, you know, just because someone watches it, it's a very different... There's a big, strong difference between, you know, obviously, and obviously Obama, first black president, that's a huge monumental occasion. A lot of people travelled to D.C. specifically to take part in that inauguration. Um, and so, you know, there, there is a difference between watching something on television and, and attending. But, you know, in some ways it shouldn't surprise us at all. You know, I've been to Trump rallies where he would turn and make the entire crowd boo um, at the media and, and, you know, and yell at them. So, like, it, it shouldn't in any way actually, to me, be surprising that this is how... Um, um, the Trump administration is speaking and talking to the media. This is how he's spoken about the media for, you know, for months through his entire campaign. He banned journalists. He banned specific reporters. He spoke aggressively against specific reporters. He mocked reporters. So, like, this sort of... This, I think, is just going to be something that we should expect um, as as part of this new administration. And, uh, and hopefully that we see an increase in investigative journalism and funding for that um, because, as you mentioned, there are a couple of key issues around uh, the Trump presidency and the ones you're mentioning there about uh, ties to Russia and that there's a particular staffer who may have um, ties with Russian officials and then also uh, Trump's business interests and uh, whether he's still receiving um, money from foreign companies through those companies and if that actually affects his ability ability to be independent as president. Where are we up to with those issues? Well, it's funny, that stuff at the moment, he's, there's been sort of, you know, the FBI announced that um, that they are investigating some of those ties. He's now in charge of the FBI, so there, there's been sort of quiet on the Russia front um, since the inauguration. Um, it will be very interesting to sort of 
see how much of that uh, comes forth and, and, and goes ahead with the intelligence agencies. He had a, a speak with, um, he had luncheon with um, CIA uh, members on offices on the, the day after the inauguration. So he's trying to obviously build his own relationship with um, intelligence agencies. Uh, he came out today, Donald Trump came out today, signing several executive orders, um, very much trying to make sure that that is sort of people are paying attention to. He got rid of the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that trade deal. He signed an executive order that banned um, international NGOs from um, providing abortion services or giving information about abortions if they get US funding. Um, and he did another one as well about um, hiring freeze on non-military federal workers. So I think Trump is very actively trying to sign as much of executive orders and, and get the conversation on different topics rather than getting people speaking any more or looking any further into the uh, his own ties or his, uh, you know, people amongst his administration's ties to Russia. Yeah, and you mentioned there um, the TPP, which, you know, we just had a chat actually with Ben Eltham about uh, federal politics and obviously Australia's party to that process of negotiations and uh, is in the TPP. Um, and uh, the mm -hmm. fact that the uh, America isn't moving forward with this agreement um, is pretty significant because America was a key player in that agreement. Um, are there... Yeah, go ahead, Amber. Oh, no, all I was going to say then is that it is also important to remember that Hillary Clinton had actually come out against the TPP. Um, that had also been a very strong thing as Bernie Sanders. So the TPP was going to disappear. The US was going to remove itself from the TPP, regardless of who won, which I'm sure they're not probably covered. Yeah, yeah. And absolutely, it's because it was unpopular. And similarly, um, yeah, Ben mentioned that Labor was quite hesitant on the TPP, um, probably more privately mm. than publicly, I'd say, as I know Penny Wong was prosecuting that um, agreement for quite a while when she was trade minister. Um, but are there, you know, Trump in his first, you know, four or five days um, has come out and has signed those executive orders and uh, you mentioned the TPP and also in regard to NGOs um, and, it, and obviously... Um, this issue of Planned Parenthood is quite significant um, in America. Are mm. there other um, mm -hmm. orders which he has started to um, move on or sign that indicate his uh, actions for the for the next few months? The one that, and I think we mentioned this as well last week, the one that everyone is very much focused on at the moment here is um, Obamacare um, and the Affordable Care Act. Um, that has already been something that the Senate and Congress has been trying to get votes through. Um, Trump has very much been pushing this. Uh, part of this becomes tied into, as well, it's not the same, but it often gets sort of, as part of healthcare is um, any federal funding of Planned Parenthood, um, partly because a lot of this sort of discussion has been around that other medical services will need to rise um, if you're getting rid of Planned Parenthood because of their, you know, because that they do give abortions or provide abortion services as well as a bunch of other um, female health, um, you know, services. But essentially you're at this real stage where the healthcare and medical system are really in this huge question mark section of what is going to happen next. Um, at the moment there is no other option available. Um, the whole plan... But many Republicans had pushed that they would have a, um, they would get rid of Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, but that there would be another option um, put in place first. There hasn't yet been another option put in place first. And so at the moment, if you get rid of Obamacare, there is about 21 million Americans who will not have uh, health insurance. Um, part of the Obamacare, Obamacare also covered people uh, for any prior illnesses or conditions that they had. Um, 
and that is going to be a, a real concern going forward. I know a lot of people who have serious illnesses, who have issues like Crohn's disease or have had cancer, who arguably, if that is no longer, if Obama can no longer exist, then they do not necessarily qualify for any insurance care whatsoever. So that is going to be an incredibly difficult thing um, because Donald Trump is very, you know, very sure that he is going to get rid of Obamacare and what will replace that is going to be a huge sort of aspect of the next few months of his administration and also for the Republicans. And you would think that his key constituency would be very much affected by, um, you know, healthcare issues and, um, you know, probably not a lot of them would have private healthcare or if they do, it would be very expensive or there are lots of reasons why they aren't able to receive it. And this, and this is part of it is that a lot of them under Obama got health care for the first time, and, but the health premiums are still too expensive for them. So it is difficult because, um, you know, it still is quite expensive to have health care here, even if it is available to you. Not everywhere has um, Medicaid services. Certain states do. Um, but it, it does mean that you're, you're absolutely right for for what we see as sort of the cliche Trump voter as a, you know, a worker from somewhere in a, you know, in in the country from a small manufacturing town or so forth. Often Obamacare has been the first time they've ever had health insurance. However, they're now having to pay quite expensive health premiums. So a lot of them were very critical of the cost of health care. And, you know, Trump has regularly said that he would replace it with a better system. He hasn't provided any evidence of what that better system is, but he has criticised the cost of healthcare and said that he would make it cheaper. So in that sort of, you know, in that push, it has gone directly towards those voters who have really struggled with their rising health premiums and who have struggled with this cost of health insurance that they now have. And so you can very much understand why if he promised to come in and make it cheaper and make it better, that that is a sell that those people, you know, see as being very valid, even if he is yet to show how that's going to happen. That will really be an interesting one to watch because as you've seen uh, with his whole uh, discussion about bringing jobs to America and how he has a very special magic wand that will uh, increase jobs. Um, Similarly, I wonder if that's going to work on healthcare. Um, So we'll definitely keep in touch on that issue. And just finally, Amber, um, we've been speaking a lot about Republicans, but what about the Democrats in the fallout of this election? And, you know, now we've got a Trump presidency, Barack is on holidays uh, with Michelle. Mm-hmm. What, um, you know, what's the fallout for the Democrats and have they started to pick up the pieces and put together any kind of strategy or thinking about, you know, what happened and what they need to do? Well, I think what you're seeing is um, emerging certain leaders and voices um, who are becoming more obvious and more critical. So you've had Elizabeth Warren, who had always been someone that... Um, people had wanted to to run for president herself and you know she never came out she didn't come out for hillary clinton until hillary clinton you know cinched the democratic nomination a lot of people thought that she would be a bernie sanders supporter she's come out very strongly um against trump and really sort of leading the progressive push um bernie sanders as well has been very active um so you're seeing is keith ellison who's likely to be the next um head of the, the dnc the democrats so there's certain um Democrats who are becoming, you know, very well-known, very public and have been very critical. You actually saw at the Women's March there was a huge amount um, of female politicians that were there. Um, Kamala Harris, who's the new uh, Indian, first Indian-American and only the second black um, 
a senator, I believe it is, um, from California, and to this, there are a few sort of very progressive women who are who are coming forth. Um, there is not yet this sort of strict, I think, known leader or what, anything that they are yet coming across. Um, but I think the Obamacare and the Health Care Act is really where I think they can push a lot on because. You know, as you sort of pointed out, it's going to be Trump voters who are really affected. And this is the kind of thing that really affects whether people live or die. So it has a very strong impact, you know, on people. And so I think around health care is going to sort of be the, the Democrats' biggest battle and probably where they will be, you know, able to, to have some sort of strong argument going forward. Thanks so much, Amber, um, for sharing that with us because, uh, yeah, it's... It is really interesting and there's a lot of detail um, going on and, and news coming out every minute or so um, with development. So you are very eloquent in crystallising that for us. Thanks, Amber, for joining us. Always a pleasure chatting. Cheers. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And uh, you are listening to Triple R. This is Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. And as promised, I have with me in the studio, Leslie Harding, who has very generously given us her time this morning to talk about the exhibition at the Heidi Museum called Making Modernism. Um, it features three amazing artists. They truly are um, groundbreaking and they were doing really significant work at the time that they were, um, you know, painting. And these women are Georgia O'Keefe, who's an American artist, um, very famous not only for her painting but being featured in um, photography by her partner, Alfred Stieglitz. Uh, and then we also uh, get to see some really just, I, I think she probably stole the show if I was going to pick a favourite, but Grace Cossington-Smith, who I really have never encountered before but was just in awe of her work and very interested to see that she did a lot of oils on cardboard, um, which is interesting as well. And then we have um, the Australian icon, Margaret Preston, who, you know, was a thought leader in art and, um, you know, Australia as an, having a national art movement, which she hoped to pioneer with others. So um, some really diverse, well, a diverse group of women and a diverse um, range of paintings and styles. Um, so thank you, Leslie, for joining us. Oh, that's a pleasure, Amy. Um, so, for those who are coming to modernism um, afresh, they may not have encountered it. Certainly not. Um, they may have encountered it in the European context, which a lot of people, if they've been to, say, um, a public art gallery like the National Gallery of Victoria, they may have seen, um, you know, abstract expressionists like Jackson Pollock, which is American, or they may have seen some Cezanne or some Van Gogh or uh, Gauguin and, uh, you know, Fauvists, Impressionists. Um, there's just so many really you know, headline artists that people would associate with modernism and many movements within modernism. But, you know, they have kind of, I guess, stolen the limelight for a long time. And, you know, they are there for a reason. They have uh, made significant contributions. But the artists in this exhibition make similarly, um, you know, astounding contributions. And it's uh, quite surprising to me going to this exhibition um, and seeing these women uh, painting at this time who aren't really that well known. Um, you know, how, what was the impetus behind looking at these three particular artists and bringing them together in the show? 
Well, the exhibition had a really interesting um, gestation, I guess. We initially approached the George O'Keefe Museum in Santa Fe, which has a really fantastic holding of O'Keefe's work from across her um, career and also a lot of works from the estate, so things that she um, kept in her personal collection. And the idea really was simply um, back then, this is many years ago when we first approached them, um, to have a a really beautiful presentation of George O'Keefe's work in Australia. She's been seen now and again with the odd work or two in um, travelling shows, particularly about American art, but she hadn't been seen in any great depth. So we wanted to not only bring George O'Keefe to Australia, but provide some sort of a context for her that might make sense to Australian audiences, but also provide Australian audiences with um, a bit of a sense of our contribution to modernism as a global phenomenon um, in the in the limelight, I guess, but, you know, um, not so much as a, a comparison point, but as a kind of a contrast with um, the sorts of things that George O'Keefe was doing in the United States. So, well, initially we... We thought we'd have a kind of broad brush look at Australian modernism and include, I don't know, maybe a dozen artists. We had a, we're really fortunate, the Terra Foundation for American Art, who have sponsored the show, um, also sponsored a, um, a get-together in Santa Fe for a curatorium of people. And these included our project partners, the Art Gallery of New South Wales and the Queensland Art Gallery. So there were five curators involved and you can imagine what um, curating by committee was like. But by the end of the week, after we'd looked at O'Keefe's work and looked at her wonderful properties and really got a sense of her um, her place in the American modernist trajectory, we decided that, in fact, the, the best thing to do in terms of um, Australian art was to show her alongside two women artists that had very similar sorts of sensibilities. Um, and while they didn't know each other, and I guess this is a, a bit of an interesting phenomenon in the exhibition, there are no um, real points of contact between the three artists, but there are um, um, a great range of really interesting similarities, not only in terms of their education and their backgrounds, but in terms of their thinking and the sorts of contributions they made to a local sense of modernism. Yeah, and you mentioned there about um, Margaret Preston and Grace Cossington-Smith, these two Australian women artists who were working in New South Wales, um, you know, sometimes were based in the city, um, in Sydney, but also were out, um, you know, in the country doing a lot of landscapes um, and interior work and also uh, still lifes. But, um, you know, and they they had these two brief points of contact, um, which I saw in the exhibition, which was, um, you know, that once uh, I think um, Margaret Preston came to the school that uh, Grace Cossington was um, learning at and, uh, and shared how she chooses colours for her paintings. And then the other point was receiving an art award at the Mossman Art Gallery for um, her work, Grace Cossington received that award. So there's this very, very brief kind of touch point of um, them crossing paths but not really an intense um, friendship or relationship of any kind. And But there was this um, interesting book I saw in the exhibition which was around colour, um, which the both women I think were influenced by and potentially even George O'Keefe. Yeah, there's a book um, called... Um Oh, actually, the name of it just escaped me, but it's by Beatrice Irwin, and it is about the kind of sort of spirituality of colour. And I guess colour theory was a really important thing around the time that, as you were talking about earlier, that the Impressionists and the Fauves and things were those sort of groups um, and art movements were really intrigued by the potentiality of, of viewing the world through this kind of filter of colour. And people like Kandinsky also were um, really important in that regard. They they sort of elevated colour to this sort of higher philosophical realm and 
I suppose the three of them um, were the three artists that were in the show were really in touch with um, what was happening in Europe, but also really keen to kind of differentiate themselves. So while the source material is there, so someone like Beatrice Irwin or Kandinsky is a kind of a common reading ground for the three of them, they all took what they wanted to um, from out of those sorts of texts and really made them their own. So for someone like Preston, you know, she was a, a very sort of tonal conservative painter early on. By the time she got to Europe and was reading and, and looking at the work of particularly people like Gauguin, who was a really fantastic colourist, um, this, this transformed her painting practice and she moved very quickly from tonal realism into um, what we would call a post-impressionist or early proto-modernist um, type of art. For Cossington Smith, um, colour came much later and I think when Preston actually went to demonstrate her colour charts and her colour wheels to Datilo Rubo's class in Sydney that um, Grace Cossington Smith uh, attended for many years, um, this was kind of a bit of a revelation. So while she painted relatively, largely, relatively conservative with, Rub- um, with Rubo, um, I mean, there is this fantastic work in the show, which is um, from 1915 called The Sock Knitter, which is a departure point and very much like Matisse. But by the time she's working by herself in her studio out at Taramara, all of these things um, about colour seem to crystallise and she really um, decided that her the rest of her career was going to be about... Um, expressing colour and light together. So um, it's a sort of a happy um, happenstance that Margaret Preston was there at that particular time. And who knows, um, Grace Cosman Smith never said how much Margaret Preston really influenced her, but there certainly is, if you want to sort of look at the evidence, this sort of core framework that both of them and and George O'Keefe had in the very early days. Yeah, and I uh, just had a quick look. at The book is called The New Science of Colour, published in 1915, if anyone's interested and uh, keen to look it up and see it at the exhibition. Um, and you mentioned there about uh, the sock knitter of 1916. So that's the kind of time that we're looking at where these artists are beginning to work and paint. But obviously their um, oeuvre spans a long time, um, a very long period. But uh, the sock knitter I saw um, was claimed as one of the first Australian post impressionist paintings Yes, there were, there were a group of, um, of three or four students at Rubo's studio who were really impressed um, by reproductions that another fellow student brought back, Nora Simpson. And this is often talked about in Australian art histories as being a real turning point. Um, but that said, I think too, Australian artists were very cognisant of what was what was happening overseas and they were reading um, having and having sent back to Australia and Sydney and Melbourne in particular overseas journals that were, and particularly little journals, that were looking at avant-garde movements um, in Europe. So there was this sort of cross-fertilisation that happens, but I think this is one of the really interesting things um, for me and my fellow curators in terms of the exhibition. It's interesting um, to, to look at and, and really think about the way modernism dispersed beyond the centre, which is Europe, um, into places that are far, far away with very different kind of um, cityscapes and land masses like America and Australia and see how the particularities of those countries actually um, metamorphoses the the way that modernism, um, you know, has its sort of straight line trajectory. Although when we, whenever we talk about modernism, of course, there are many isms within it. So you think about things like cubism and uh, futurism and constructivism um, and the many things that happened... In you know, later on, they're all kind of like tentacles of an octopus. And it makes sense, I suppose, that Australian artists and American artists picked up on certain tend- 
contingencies that were relevant to the local context. Yeah, and absolutely you make a great point there that it's not, um, you know, a direct transplantation from Europe and and not a copying. It's about um, really drawing out the theories and ideas behind these works in Europe and then um, applying them to Australia. And, you know, not only in the subject matter, um, you know, which certainly would influence people and you can see that in Grace Cossington-Smith's work with um, her her work on the Sydney Harbour Bridge when it hadn't yet been completed and you have this amazing picture of um, it basically not even meeting halfway and these two kind of half-made arches coming towards the centre and and also... Um, this really interesting um, painting called The Lacquer Room, which depicts a soda fountain at the David Jones um, Food Hall in Sydney, which really is, um, it has some neon colours in it. Like it really is quite uh, revolutionary for the time that she's working in and and we often think I think that you know modernism is now very mainstream and we just look at it and say oh yeah okay we've moved on and you know it, it seems to fit within our culture now really well it's accepted but at the time it was a really new thing to do and it was quite jarring for people who were used to that um, you know still old master style of work in the Victorian era how were these artists particularly the Australian ones received um, when they were doing their work and showing their work? Um, Differently. It's interesting, I think, um, to think about them as personalities. Now that I've sort of got to know the artists a little better over the course of the research, um, in many ways, um, Cossington Smith sort of sits aside from the other two. O'Keefe and Preston are very um, aware of their place um, in the art world. They're great self-promoters. They're quite eager for publicity. Um, O'Keefe had, was fortunate enough to align herself very early on with Alfred Stieglitz, who ran the most avant-garde gallery in New York at the time in the, uh, you know, in the sort of First World War period. And he was showing the really most progressive European modernists at that gallery. So she had exposure to, you know, a wealth of art direct from Europe in, you know, the first person rather than in reproduction, which is unfortunately largely what um, Preston Cossington Smith did, although Preston did travel to Europe and was based in England during the First World War. Um, but the, the two of them were very kind of proactive. And Cossington Smith, I think, um, she didn't travel a great deal. She travelled later in life. She had a brief period where she studied um, in Winchester in England, but it was a very sort of conventional kind of art school at the time. So it really wasn't until she was working on her own in her studio out in, you know, the outer, outer suburbs of Sydney that she really began expressing um, her own vision and it's something that she as you talk about with the lacquer room she really advanced without outside influences in many ways so she was kind of a loner in um, and by contrast the other two were very much um, you know at the forefront of the art scene so someone like Margaret Preston enjoyed a really good reputation by the time she came back to um, Australia she'd married um, and moved in Adelaide and moved to Sydney fairly quickly in the 1920s she made it her business to um, connect with um, people like Sydney or Smith who was published Art in Australia, also the Home Magazine, which is a very you know cosmopolitan, well-to-do kind of magazine for um, upper middle-class housewives who really aspire to do lots of lovely travelling and have a very modern kind of um, home. 
So all of these things sort of fed into her her reputation and her practice. And she found um, fairly quickly that things like her woodblock prints, which were very sort of Japanese-inspired, very of the time, um, really found a good rapport with audiences. So she sold a lot, as did O'Keefe. She really made a firm living out of her painting. Whereas Cossington Smith, you know, scarcely sold anything. So things like the lacquer room, as you were discussing, with its beautiful neon colours, um, which are a snapshot of a particular period in time, um, these are things that she kept in her own collection and they were really very much her own project, not about responding to what other people might like or think. Yeah, and um, we're talking about the lacquer room and these kind of really bright and somewhat unnatural colours. Um, you wouldn't think that you would see them in a soda fountain. But um, I heard this interview with Cossington Smith where she was talking about how she just came upon it and felt that it was really modern and vibrant and new and that the bright red chairs were really engaging to her and that all of these people in the, the soda shop were, that were from different parts of society and they started looking at her and staring at her when she was drawing them because they could tell that she was looking at them and it was really just because she personally engaged with this subject matter and then was inspired technically by it and what I think is so interesting and hopefully people who see the exhibition will notice the techniques that she's using which um, you know they're not they're different from the impressionist and our post-impression I guess in the sense that they're kind of longest, longer strokes um, in terms of the brush strokes and that she doesn't mix colours on the canvas because um, you'd see a lot in, say, Monet and Pissarro who are very much, you know, you might see three or four colours in one area of paint, um, whereas these ones are just so meticulous um, and have this great dynamism um, in them. And as she says, as she's trying to get the light in the colours by using these longer strokes. Um, you know, was that something that is unique to Cossington Smith or, um, you know, what were the kind of techniques that these artists were using at the time? Yes, in many ways, Cossington Smith, as I said before, she does sort of stand alone and that technique that you're describing is something that she developed in order to get um, this wonderful sense, as you say, of dynamism in her paintings. And this was really important to her, not not only colour and light, um, but also a sense of movement and a a living energy about her subject. So when you look at the plants that she's painting, there's a really beautiful painting called um, Pumpkin Leaves Drooping, which even though they're kind of, the leaves are listless and but you get this sense of them sort of being battered by a really hot summer sun and um, or you you know, some sort of a, a heat wave and they're really struggling and needing a drink of water. Um, but you get this this beautiful sense in her paintings that um, she's painting in front of the subject. They're subjects that are really familiar to her and that she understands well and has looked at really closely um, and also provide her with a technical challenge. So there's another, you know, terrific painting um, which is a, a still life essentially of objects on a, on a tray. And for me, it feels like someone's just literally put this tray down on the ground. It's sort of shimmering and has that kind of, you can almost hear the tinkle of the glasses touching together. Um, and this is her sort of great gift, I think. Preston was a lot more um, deliberate. She was very much a studio painter. She fitted her painting in and around her other activities and she was really great at doing crafts and things like that. She was constant and cooking. She was constantly curated, um, creative, Preston. She also was a great sort of public advocate. So she did a lot of teaching and lecturing and, you know, pushing around of... Um, 
the powers that be in order to find you know, better opportunities for artists. So her technique, I think, I mean, the still life is really her subject. Flower paintings, which we know and love her for, um, are really her thing. And she finds endless possibilities in that. In fact, she calls the still life table um, like a laboratory table for an artist. You know, there's an infinite amount of things you can actually do if you stick to one subject. O'Keefe, on the other hand, um, by the time she moved away from New York and into New Mexico permanently, you know, she was surrounded by this incredible, very ancient high desert landscape. And so, again, the familiar and what's what you come to know is really important. And for her, that became a kind of a testing ground for um, ideas about colour, ideas about form um, and ideas about sort of the history of, of, of America. She really wanted very much to cement some kind of modernist national idiom um, in the kind of broader trajectory of American painting. Yeah, and um, we'll come to O'Keefe in a minute because I want to get into some depth about that. Um, but just on Margaret Preston, as you were just mentioning about the um, still lifes that she's painting and the flowers, which are a great subject matter, very iconic in her woodblocks as well as her paintings. Um, some of them, well, a lot, they're all native flowers, really. Um, the, the ones that you see in the exhibition, um, or most of them at least, and, and there are um, one called Western Australian Gum Blossom, which is a beautiful one, and uh, the double hibiscus and you just see that um that she's choosing flowers but is it more for um the the way that she can experiment technically and to represent them um rather than the the subject matter itself like is it um is there a conscious reason behind why she chose the flowers yeah she's um, Preston's are really um, interested, very much interested in, in technical aspects of painting, the kind of composition. Very early on, she decided that, um, you know, when she was transforming into a, a modernist kind of style, which she, again, like Cosmina Smith, she very much um, made her own and forged her own path. There's really no one quite like uh, Margaret Preston operating at the same time. Um, she had this sense that she wanted to kind of decorate, and I don't want to use that word in a, in a way that's, you know, conjures up the wrong idea, but sort of cover the canvas, fill in areas of interest and that for her was a real technical challenge for a period in time where she wanted to be able to fill the, fill the composition with um, interest and form and shape and somehow still managed to have a form, um, a definitive form kind of emerge out of this. So colour was really important um, flatness was really important pattern was was critical but by the time she gets to things like the double hibiscus this is in, in the later 1920s and and that most famous painting the western australian gum blossom she's starting to look at flowers particularly indigenous flowers for um, their sort of architectural properties their very formal um, beautiful shapes and about reducing those into things that might kind of elevate them uh, to some sort of higher purpose and there was method to her madness in, in a sense because um, like like Georgia O'Keeffe, she was very self-conscious about her place in the art world. Um, she was dismissed often about being a flower painter and she wanted to find a way of expressing her Australianness through these particular sort of subject matters. Things that she knew well, things that she could grow in her garden, um, particularly when she lived out at Barara um, on the Hawkesbury, the outer reaches of the Hawkesbury River. And you know, she could bring either paint them in situ or bring them into her house and really study them closely and, and find things in them, I guess, that hadn't been found before by botanical painters or photographers and the like. Yeah, you, it's right that she um, she simplifies it down, but it's not simple. Um, it, and it seems to some of them have multi-perspectives in, in them, the way that they're facing and that they have a great deal of depth 
um, even though, you know, the flatness of the canvas is somewhat emphasised. Um, and I know that, uh, as you say, Margaret Preston was writing a lot and was quite prolific and a great thinker of in art and Australian art. And she um, she did write for Art in Australia and I was looking through Trove, um, which has, I think, nearly all of the um, editions, if anyone's interested. But she wrote a lot about Indigenous art and was very inspired at one point by their art and and wanted to... Um, she, well, some of her paintings are very much inspired by um, Indigenous art and you can see, you know, the dots in the landscape and the types of representations she's using. Um, how, how, to what extent did she pursue this, um, you know, this idea of a national art that was Australian and was really grounded in Indigenous art and modes of um, painting and representation? She pursued it for a long time. She first began really seriously painting um, things like banksias and um, um, those Indigenous flowers in the late 1920s, even though she'd painted them a bit before, but they were much more sort of decorative works. Um, but she turned to really sort of sombre hues and very much looking at the kind of palette that the Australian bush inspires um, by the late 1920s. And when she moved to Barara um, in the early 1930s, where she had this, she was on a property where there was a, it was an acreage, there was um, all of this native bush untouched effectively around her and also some very historic um, Aboriginal sites with um, with cave paintings or, you know, um, carvings and, and that sort of thing, really ancient um, Indigenous works, um, that she began to formulate this idea that um, that there was a way of... of creating an Australian modernism that was really rooted in the sort of things that our first peoples were interested in. There was an inherent kind of flatness and simplification and symbolism in their in their work. Now, this approach has subsequently, of course, come under quite a lot of um, scrutiny and criticism because um, in many ways what Preston was doing in a roundabout way was appropriation. And, you know, we're not comfortable with this from today's perspective. Um, but if you could take yourself back to the 1930s, there was no one else doing this kind of thing. She unfortunately, in, in a sort of a, a very unfortunate episode, advocated that people start using Indigenous symbols and motifs on decorative art. So, you know, in your own home, decorate your lampshades and things like that. Um, and that was a, a slight... She really retracted herself from that particular line of inquiry um, not very long after. Uh, but what she did do in her painting was try and really look to the palette, look to the kind of aerial perspectives that Aboriginal painters used um, and make these sort of amalgamated pictures from memory that for her were quite symbolic of her sense of place. And it was something that she investigated and um, began painting landscape paintings um, for a period of time, but really right through to the mid-1950s when she was sort of winding up her career, um, this became a real preoccupation. And she wrote many articles about it. Um, she gave lots of lectures and she was also really, uh, I think this is probably an overlooked aspect of her, um, her contribution. She was really heavily involved in um, the procurement of um, documentation of really remote Indigenous um, art sites 
and travelled really widely with her husband to photograph them um, and did a lot of work with the Anthropological Society of New South Wales and also um, in helping to arrange exhibitions of this sort of work so people could really appreciate the culture that was on their very doorsteps. That's an unusual aspect of modernism which we generally see as a very European kind of mode um, but he, he was Preston really trying to make it her own or make it very relevant to Australia. Yeah and, and you make a good point there to look at it in the context that it was created at the time which you know in the 1930s um, things were not that well advanced um, in terms of our respect for um, Indigenous people in our country but Margaret um, certainly did do it out of um, appreciation for and deep admiration of um, Indigenous art so that was you know, quite refreshing to read her pieces about that and just how much how passionate she was about Indigenous art. It's very interesting to see that she was involved in that, um, you know, uh, documentation and recording of it. Um, and so moving to one of these great American icons, Georgia O'Keeffe, who, you know, can hold her own against any painter in the world. Um, there is, you know, a very large um, portion dedicated to Georgia O'Keeffe and her paintings are slightly larger than the other paintings um, by the Australian artists. And it was interesting to see her, her artistic and stylistic evolution. Um, so she did have um, this moment uh, where she was doing a lot of abstract paintings and you couldn't really um, see exactly what what it was, like what it was referring to, if at all, anything, any particular subject matter. And um, I think there was one where there was, is it called like blue and grey? And it had this really bright ultramarine blue. So, um, you know, just amazing and, and then you see later on in in Europe other painters like Pierre Soulage you know 30 years later or even longer than that picking up these kind of techniques of abstraction that uh, Georgia O'Keeffe is doing so early on um, and then she moves on to flowers and there is that kind of tie-in with the others um, looking at flowers but she's doing it in a very different way to to what people have been um, depicting flowers in the past and and I wonder um, looking at her absolutely abstract work which seems very um not inspired by but somewhat influenced by modernist photography in, in the kind of curvature and lines that are used in that those paintings but then also um, how she got to the point of looking at flowers and um, you know making them slightly abstracted or, or more cropped and, and it's more about the form and the colours. How did she move between these these kind of very different modes of depicting things? Yeah on, on the face of it they are very different modes um, but in a sense they kind of come from the same um, same sort of energy and spirit. She was she's an interesting case, very um, forthright individual, Georgia O'Keefe, and, and very sort of um, set on her path. Early on, she became very disenchanted with the kind of art education she'd had in America and gave away painting for a few years, in fact, until she came across... Uh, she heard a lecture by a fellow called Arthur Dow and he was very influenced by another um, great scholar f um, who had inspired him to really look at ja the kind of universal forms that you see in, in Eastern art, Japanese and Chinese art. So this kind of... Um, informed his theories and O'Keefe really took to this t like a duck to water. Suddenly everything made sense, she was inspired again and she began drawing actually in charcoal abstractly, completely abstractly. Um, 
things always sort of reference life, but you don't always see this kind of reference to real life in the actual abstract drawings and and early paintings. And she was lucky enough to be um, picked up by Alfred Stieglitz, who also, um, you know, they went on to develop a a personal relationship fairly quickly after. So I think it was probably a combination of those, the artistic genius and um, and a great attraction. Um, But he, he really encouraged her to pursue this particular course. So the first paintings you see in the show... Um, you know, they've got sort of references to the body, say, um, but she, you know, she talks to about them as, you know, being completely abstract and, and for encouraging her audience to really see in them what they want to see related to their own sort of life experience. Not very long after, she and Stieglitz started going to Lake George, which is where Stieglitz, the Stieglitz family had a, um, a sort of a holiday estate and she would spend about half the year with Stieglitz there, so the summer and autumn months there and then um, in winter back in New York City. And this is when she first starts really kind of studying nature up close and decides to enlarge flowers, leaves and, and things from the natural world, shells and, and that kind of, you know, those beautiful, very organic natural forms. And she really um, combines this with her sense of abstraction and fills her entire canvases with the, the forms of these flowers. It's almost like you're looking into the flower. There's this great sense of intimacy, much like the earlier works which sort of reference the body. And these were an absolute sensation. They, she revolutionised revolutionised the way that the still life might be considered. And, you know, yes, it's a great breakthrough in terms of her practice, but she goes on to make further break, breakthroughs later on. Later that decade, in, in about 1929, she goes to New Mexico for a, a good holiday and suddenly starts thinking about, um, you know, colon- the colonial American history and the sense that that group of modernists really had, which was to try and find um, an art form that really was, um, you know, rooted in the American soil. There was this great sort of spirit of nationalism about their practice at the time, I guess partly inspired by the fact that, you know, they loved the modernism that was coming out of Europe, but they really wanted to make something that was relevant culturally to um, to America. So, you know, she then starts painting the landscape, but applies the same sorts of principles. So you get these fantastic pelvis bones with the landscape or the sky sort of appearing through them where everything's kind of magnified and they're in macro or micro form and um, you get this amazing sort of flatness. The one thing I have to say that I really didn't appreciate until the, all the works turned up and we hung them in the gallery was the fact that George O'Keefe has this um, consist, incredibly consistent uh, and very beautiful tactile sense of surface in her paintings and that in a way is a unifying thread across all the sort of different themes and subject matters in her work. There's this is almost sort of velvety pastel-like finish to her pictures which she remains faithful to from the beginning when it's completely abstract and then when she turns to complete um, ab- abstraction later on in her career. I'm Amy Mullins and you're listening to Uncommon Sense and I'm speaking with Leslie Harding who's the curator at the Heidi Museum of Modern Art and we're discussing the exhibition Making Modernism which is on at the moment. And um, just finally on Georgia O'Keeffe and you mentioned this velvet finish which yeah it, it has almost like sometimes a 3D quality to it. Um, how like when she got to New Mexico and she's in this other landscape, which she actually ended up moving there, um, you know, after Albert Stieglitz had died, um, she's there by herself um, out in the desert, really inspired by everything that's around her. Um, what 
what are the features of this um, phase in her career? So you're mentioning the skulls and the different bones um, and the, the desert landscape. What is she most inspired by in terms of the subject matter and, um, you know, why she turned to this so significantly in the final part of her career? Uh, I think it's the ancientness of the environment around her and it's almost as if she can try and distill something, extract something from this very ancient kind of landscape and environment. I think the bones come out of a colonial history where, you know, the kind of cowboy um, aesthetic, trophy aesthetic um, in part, but also um, they really started because after that first visit to New Mexico, she really wanted to take something of the desert, which was she found so awe-inspiring, back to, with her to New York to paint. And that's where the sort of skull, pelvis, bones, etc., series um, sort of started. And they're things that she returns to, you know, for the decades that follow. Um, but it's the spirit of the landscape that really attracts her. And she would go to certain places time and again. And I, I suppose a bit like someone like Monet, look at them in diff- at different times of year, in different kind of lights at dawn, at dusk, um, including this beautiful... Um, Salita wall in a door in a, in a wall in a courtyard in her house at Abiquiu and this is something you can almost um, you know track the time of day according to the shaft of light that's on these paintings but she is endlessly fascinated by this simple door square door shape in um, her courtyard wall and the way that it looks so completely different at various times and she finds some sort of strange magic in this and and this is a, conv- a tradi- really traditional kind of adobe house that she that she was living in. Um, so she was living in a tiny little village with um, with local Pueblo people. Um, uh, interested in their religion and their kind of rites of passage and things like that. Uh, so it's this whole kind of cultural shift that happens when you come out of a major city like, you know, it's an internationally exciting city like New York and um, almost isolate yourself in a, in a community where you don't really speak the language and, um, you know, there are all of these kind of tr- traditions and rituals and themes and customs that, that and symbols that um, are really uh, magical and inspiring and have some sort of connection to um, you know the past and the present and the future so for O'Keefe um, you know that that environment her, her very by by this stage by later in her career her very well-known well-traversed environment um, provides sort of endless fascination there's a pedinal that you can see from her ghost ranch house and again she actually says God said he would give me this mountain if I could find a way of painting it beautifully and it's almost like she spends the rest of her life you know trying to find the most beautiful rendition of this of this beautiful pedinal that she possibly can um, yeah she's an amazing artist and um, I think has a great conversation with these two Australian women that she never met she is amazing and you're right it, that she is aspiring to beauty in, in many other um, regards and as are the other artists in this exhibition and I think that's what, um, you know, my the impression I'm taking away was that not only is it colourful and innovative technically um, and and just inspiring um, but also beautiful, aesthetically beautiful to look at and to stand in front of for quite a long time and uh, my favourite is Trees actually by Grace Cossington-Smith so if anyone... Um, heads out there take a look at trees it's a little bit psychedelic and that's why Mm. I like it so much Um, thank you so much Leslie for coming in and sharing with us um, your insights and knowledge on this topic and um, and the exhibition that you've curated with the other curators 
uh, I really encourage everyone to take a look and go visit Heidi. And um, there is, as we heard on one of the announcements, a Art by Twilight event, uh, which is on February the 4th, and it uh, is open till 9pm. And Triple R's very own John Bailey will be DJing there. So it's a great atmosphere to go and see some very important modernist artwork. And uh, yeah, I hope that that might have sparked your interest and you can have a Google and look at some of the pictures and check out the Heidi website to see what some of the artworks we've been referencing today. Thanks so much, Leslie, for joining us. Oh, thanks very much, Amy. It's been lovely talking to you. I'm really keen and excited to be discussing these topics with Mark Wakeham now, um, CEO of Environment Victoria. And um, there's so much really to talk about that it's hard to know where to start. There's a lot of announcements that have been coming out in the last week, um, as we were just discussing Mark off air. And um, one of them is this idea of strengthening and modernising as they've, um, as you've referred and as they're intending. Um, and there was an inquiry done into the EPA, which I think the findings were released uh, mid last year. And so there's been a bit of a delay in terms of the state governments, um, you know, ch- how what choosing what they're going to adopt and how many of these recommendations they really want to implement. Um, but I think it's worth reminding um, everyone Everyone that the the Environmental Protection Authority in Victoria is a quite um, significant uh, authority in the sense that it was um, it was the second across the world to actually come into fruition. So it has a great legacy um, and it really is particularly important um, to be protecting our environment and our health um, and the way that those um, interact. But when I was looking through the inquiry and the report's recommendations, what came through very strongly was this focus on um, the idea that the environment and pollution and uh, the impact that we have on our environment has the potential to be detrimental for our health, for human health. And um, I wonder whether we're missing the other side of the story, which is that we're in, endangering animals and the environment itself in the first place um, and that that should be an equal concern, not just for ourselves. Thanks for joining me, Mark. G'day. Good, good to join you. Thanks very much for having me here. It's a pleasure. Um, and what are your thoughts on that? So, you know, in your role in Environment Victoria, you know, the, there's a very strong word there, environment. Um, and, you know, the, there is this interaction between humans and our environment and the impact that we're having, um, you know, because we live in a post-industrialised society. How um, does the EPA currently manage this balance between, um, you know, uh, development and uh, the various business interests of actually um, working and growing in a in a modern society, but then also looking after and protecting the environment? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so when the EPA was founded in 1970, 1971, it really had a focus on pollution and particularly industrial pollution. So quite often that was in places like the western suburbs of Melbourne where there's chemical factories or whether it's landfills, for instance, or in industrial areas like the Latrobe Valley. So it was really... Um, primarily concerned with, well, what were the local pollution impacts? And of course, being humans, we were sort of most focused on what were the, the impacts on humans.
humans. Um, but there is a role that the EPA plays in looking at the impact of pollution on the natural environment, but it's probably, it plays second fiddle to impact on communities. Um, uh, and one of the reforms in the uh, of the EPA which has been proposed and supported by the government is that they actually introduce a, a new head environmental scientist, which will hopefully have a better look at the EPA's, EPA's role in protecting the natural environment as well. Yeah, and um, they're currently advertising that position. So if we have any environmental scientists listening, please do apply. And uh, it would be great to see women and men out there pushing for this role because it does look like a pretty important one. And that is something which um, is you know, delineates the EPA from a lot of other government bodies is its um, environmental and scientific expertise. Um, and I think a lot of Victorians do see it as a very important um, body, or at least I do, in the sense that when I see, um, you know, exhaust, uh, you know, coming out of a car that seems um, to be too much, it, it makes me concerned. And I think of the EPA and their app, which you can use to, um, you know, report um, things like environmental pollution that comes from cars and other industrial type of um, scenarios but how you know from this point of um, industrial pollution where have has the EPA gotten to because you know it's been in the news a lot recently with this um, you know discussion about asbestos at at the Corkman Hotel in um, Carlton which is no longer Um, but you know it must do a whole range of um, activities some of which are probably lesser known to um, us. Yeah, so it plays a role in looking at approvals of new projects and assessing the environmental impacts. Um, it, it issues licences to um, operations to pollute, actually, to discharge to the environment, uh, and it, it responds to pollution incidents. Um, and I, I guess where we're at with all those things is that these powers were set up in 1971, as you, as you said, it was the you know one of the first EPAs in the world, and um, the, the powers... Uh, are pretty limited and pretty out of date. So if you compare it with, say, the powers of um, you know a, a work health authority that looks at incidents in the workplace, there's the the, the fines that exist for breaches are nowhere near as large. Um, it's it's much less clear when action legal action can be taken against a polluter. And so some of these are those the subject of reform. So they're, they're make, making it much clearer what the rules are around pollution, introducing a general duty not to cause harm. So that's great. You know, there's there's embedded in the legislation will be the idea that people conducting, you know, economic activity in Victoria should not cause harm. And therefore, there'll be the potential to test that legislation when incidents like, for instance, the Hazelwood Mine Fire happened, which, you know, was one of, one of Victoria's worst ever pollution incidents. Um, so, so we really need to modernise these laws and we're, we're taking a good step in that direction. There's probably more we could be doing, particularly on climate change. I mean, you mentioned our impact on the natural world. And the EPA has very limited powers when it comes to regulating um, uh, global warming emissions um, and there is a much stronger role that they could be playing putting pollution limits on power stations for instance and requiring that emissions come down over time but they haven't yet had that direction from government so that's what we'd like to see next. And in terms of this inquiry and these reforms you're mentioning how many of the um, recommendations have they actually decided to take on? Yeah I think there was 45 recommendations uh, and sort of 38 were accepted or 39 were accepted wholeheartedly there was about uh, five that had some sort of caveat to and we had a good look at those and we weren't too 
too worried by them. And there was one that was um, that was disagreed with, uh, but we looked at the detail around that. That was around the environmental scientist, uh, oh, sorry, whether the CEO should have to be an environmental scientist, the EPA. And they came to the conclusion that, well, no, actually, we don't think they do. If, if we have a head environmental scientist, the CEO doesn't necessarily need to be an environmental scientist. So that was fair enough. So, so by and large, it's a pretty ringing endorsement um, of the inquiry and we're pretty pleased with the outcome. There, there is a number of hurdles to get over. It's still got to get through Parliament, a couple of pieces of legislation. We don't know particularly where the coalition will stand on it. Um, you know, they founded the EPA in 1971, so they should support these reforms, but they haven't been so positive on issues like renewable energy and energy efficiency in, in the Parliament in recent months. So hopefully they, they do the right thing here. Yeah, and um, you mentioning the, the Hazelwood mine fire, which was just constant um, in the news and, you know, it was quite distanced from um, us in Melbourne, but, you know, certainly it was very much impacting the local people in Hazelwood or around that area. Um, and it says here that the EPA took more than two years to lay charges um, for environmental breaches relating to the Hazelwood mine fire. That's right. And it might take another two years for those charges to work their way through the court system. And even if they do and prosecutions are successful, we might be looking at fines in the hundreds of thousands of dollars rather than the, you know tens of millions of dollars that you'd expect for Victoria's worst ever pollution incident. Yeah, and I mean, these are government funds that have been poured into actually trying to rectify the damage and deal with the fallout from the Hazelwood mine fire. So you would think it would be in the government's interest to, um, you know, expedite this. But do the reforms actually boost um, the EPA's ability to prosecute and would make such a similar scenario in the future um, better? That, well, they aim to clarify the EPA's powers. We haven't seen the legislation yet, so hopefully it actually does that and there was a clear statement that they would increase penalties so that's obviously going to be a good deterrent to pollution but it's also it's all, it also sort of puts businesses who aren't polluting on a level playing field with those that are so if you know renewable energy industry is competing with polluting coal-fired power stations um, and polluting coal-fired power stations are not getting prosecuted when they damage the environment um, and people's health uh, then it's not a level playing field. So hopefully this evens, evens it up for those who are doing the right thing as well. Yeah. And um, we're talking about, you know, cleaner energy. And I saw that Environment Victoria made comment on um, Matt Canavan's kind of idea about an ultra supercritical, I think it's called, uh, energy uh, power station and we just briefly mentioned it when I had Ben Eltham on talking about federal politics. Um, it seems like a, a very weird idea to just mention and drop, um, you know, in a summer holiday. What was your idea and thought on that? Uh, nothing surprises me when it comes to energy politics anymore in Australia. Um, we seem to uh, be in a pretty uh, debauched debates on energy policy and we, you know, we constantly have these thought bubbles um, uh, proposed and they're really a distraction and they're a distraction from the fact that Australia doesn't have a coherent climate policy, it doesn't have a coherent er energy policy, our emissions are going up, not down, we're discouraging investment in renewable energy at exactly the time we need it most and we've made promises on the international stage that we can't deliver with our current policy setting. So, that's the reality and in that to, to distract us from that reality we get you know conversations about nuclear power clean coal 
concern about energy security, a whole lot of focus on price rises, despite the fact that if we build a lot more renewable energy prices will come down. So, yeah, it's, it's a pretty frustrating state of affairs, our energy debates um, nationally. That's why it's good to see some state governments getting on with the job of, you know, things like renewable energy targets. But um, I, I think the, 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 the fact that underpins where we're at on energy policy in Australia is that the federal government particularly is out of step with where the community's at. You know, support for renewable energy across the community is extremely high. Uh, and, and at some stage that's going to catch up with the politics. Yeah, and energy security is often one of those excuses that's used by the coalition to talk about why we can't have renewable energy and why we need a certain amount of baseload power to get us through and apparently South Australia is an example of why renewables won't work and we have bendy power lines and weird things happening. But, um, you know, what um, we're talking about renewable energy and the investment environment um, particularly in Victoria, say, and I know that it has been very uncertain times for a long time in the last five years, most definitely. Um, where are we at now for investors in uh, renewable energy in Victoria and Australia more broadly? Yeah, we're at a pretty fragile place. We've got a renewable energy target for 2020 nationally, which requires a lot of investment in new projects, around about four or five billion dollars worth of new projects to be built in the next three years. That's not very long. You kind of need to start building right now to achieve that. Uh, and yet overnight, again, we've had coalition backbenchers saying, you know, if Trump walks away from Paris, we should scrap our renewable energy target. So if you're about to make, you know, a $500 million investment in a new wind farm and you need to make money over the next 30 years, what sort of signal is the federal government sending you when they're talking about walking away from the renewable energy target? Um, you know, if you want to create jobs in Western Victoria in a wind farm and invest several hundred million dollars, you're going to need to know that the policy settings are going to support you over the next 10, 15, 20 years. And so we're in a difficult place, particularly federally. At the state level, um, the state government has, has promised to follow in the footsteps of the ACT, which basically started running auctions for bringing online renewable energy projects. Um, and they announced uh, one last week for the trams, uh, new solar projects to power the tram network. Um, but uh, they've got a series of auctions planned to massively increase our renewable energy in Victoria, actually, which is really positive, particularly as, you know, Hazelwood will be closing later this year. Um, sorry, sorry in, in March this year. Uh, so we've got a good pipeline of projects that are being guaranteed by state governments. Federal government is a little bit missing in action and sending mixed messages at the moment. Yeah. And um, in terms of these quite innovative in, in comparison to the federal government, state projects like you say, the, uh, the solar powered trams in Melbourne that will be coming um, or at least that will be coming to fruition soon. Um, are there any other things in the pipeline? Like you mentioned those projects. I know the city of Melbourne has been very much um, jumping on board these kind of community based or partnerships um, on renewable energy. Are there some things that people can take heart from or be inspired by? Um, in this space? Yeah, there are. And so what's happening with the renewable energy technologies is really inspiring. The, the, the rate at which they're developing, the rate at which prices are falling is really inspiring. Uh, we're probably going to see a near record uh, year for solar power installations in Australia this year. Um, a lot of that will also be in the commercial sector because a lot of companies that use a lot of energy are um, seeing the writing on the wall. It is cheaper if you've got solar panels on your roof. So, you know, there's, there's really encouraging 
uh, growth of the solar market. There's a lot happening in the community energy space and there's going to be a big congress in Melbourne uh, in a few weeks um, with community energy projects from all over Australia coming together and, and talking about how you get these community projects up, whether it's on you know, the local bowling club or whether it's building a new wind farm like the one at, uh, in Dalesford. And, and what's happening in the, the battery space is really exciting as well. You know, in South Australia, for more than half of the households, it is now cheaper to spend $8,000 and get batteries installed. And over, the, over the lifetime of those batteries, it will be cheaper to do that than just to buy power from the grid. And when that happens, you get these dramatic uptakes of these new technologies. So, yeah, technology is really exciting. And I also think where the community's at is, is quite exciting as well. There's huge support for these technologies. Um, there's real concern about climate change. Um, we just need the politics to catch up. Yeah, I mean, it's sad because I, I don't think we can, you know, look forward to that in the next three years or so, but hopefully we do. At least we're seeing movement, as you say, in the state government level and the council level and, you know, private individuals, community groups and businesses. But, at, you know, you can see there's this huge disconnect and uh, it's very um, disheartening to see, but also I'm glad that there are inspiring positive things happening on in this space. Yeah, and I think we'll see movement much faster than three years, you know, I, I think that the the federal government's current position is is actually untenable, um, and they're sort of they're sort of telling this story about energy security, and yet power stations like Hazelwood are closing as a result of decisions being made in Paris, so by 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 the company that owns that power station. So the federal government is essentially powerless because of its lack of an energy policy, whereas um, federally the opposition and the Greens have been. Um, talking about the need for a plan for the orderly closure of our coal-fired power stations and their replacement with renewable energy over the next decade. And I think there's, you know, the environment groups want that, community wants that, business wants that, opposition parties want that, state governments want that. The only people who so far haven't supported that are the federal government. And when you start seeing communities miss out on hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars of investment because they're not getting the right signals. Hopefully you start some people who supposedly stand for business and investment and jobs actually starting to support these these new industries, which are the biggest industries in the world now. There's emerging renewable energy industries. I mean, last five years, we've seen more investment in renewable energy globally. So this includes places like China and India. So globally, we've seen more investment in renewables than coal, oil and gas combined. So seriously, uh, even if you don't care about climate change, you don't care about the environment and you care about business, you'd be crazy to be denying this sector the opportunity to flourish in Australia. Absolutely. And so there's a great deal of ideology at play Absolutely. in this debate. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and hopefully we do, I mean, even if they have to be led uh, by business and by other groups that they do reluctantly <laughs> resign their fate to the fact that renewables are here to stay. So that will be a joyous day whenever we see that. Um, but the other thing I wanted to discuss with you, which I know you were talking about, was the um, Hazelwood mine closure and the rehabilitation um, that needs to go into actually making that site um, okay again. Benign, yeah. yeah. So uh, can you share more about that? Yeah, so we started looking at this issue a couple of years ago, knowing that these power stations and mines were going to be closing sometime soon. And we discovered that each of the mines and power stations basically had a a $15 million rehabilitation bond to do the work when they shut. And 
we didn't think that was anywhere near enough and started campaigning on that. Um, it became a real issue over the course of the Hazelwood Mine Fire, uh, uh, the inquiry into the Hazelwood Mine Fire, because it was revealed that the lack of rehabilitation at the mine sites had actually been the reason the fire had caught hold in the pit. Uh, and so subsequently, rehabilitation bonds have been increased. Uh, they're at about $70 million for each of the mines now, which means that the companies have to spend around about that much money uh, or have to give that much money to the state government to guarantee that they do properly rehabilitate the site. But the Hazelwood last week just um, lodged their corporate statements and revealed that they've increased their estimate of rehabilitation to three quarters of a billion dollars. Um, which is really big news because um, so they, they've made that allocation in their own company budgets. That's an awful lot of projects, uh, sorry, rehabilitation work in the Latrobe Valley, a lot of jobs over the next 20, 30 years, but it also shows how big that job is. And I guess it raises the question, well, if Hazelwood's going to cost $750 million to rehabilitate, what about all the other mines and power stations around the country? And, you know, when the coalition particularly talks about coal providing cheap energy, we haven't factored that into that cheap energy, very large costs that will need to be picked up, hopefully not by the taxpayer. Yeah, and in that scenario, can you clarify who is paying and how much? So the company has put um, that money on the table in this case, um, which is good news. They're the, I think they're the second largest energy company in the world. and they've Based made, in France. That's right. And they've made a conscious decision to shift to renewable energy, which which is why they're closing Hazelwood. And this is what the big energy companies worldwide are doing. We're just sort of ignoring that in Australia. Um, but so they, they appear to be doing the right thing, which is really great. Um, but, you know, there's a bunch of other mines and power stations who have very small rehabilitation bonds and, and may walk away from sites in the future if they're required to rehabilitate to that standard. Yeah. No, it's really concerning and very surprising that it's been moved up from 15 million to three quarters of a billion. Um, so certainly that's something that, yeah, all governments should be looking at in terms of these other coal mines that might shut and hopefully will shut in the future. Yeah, that's right. And the fact is we don't really know what it's going to take to rehabilitate these sites. I mean, at, at Hazelwood, which is just um, near Morwell, they've been digging that pit for about 60 years. So, um, and no one's ever tried to rehabilitate a mine of that size. And the current plan is to fill it with water and turn it into a lake. And nobody really knows how, what that'll mean for surrounding river systems or groundwater. So, you know, there's a whole lot of work to do mm. to quantify that. And that exists around the country as well. You know, it's an issue around the country. It is. Um, we'll certainly keep an eye on that because that's obviously developing kind of issue and story, particularly in Hazelwood for that community and for all of us in Victoria. Thanks so much, Mark, for joining us. It's been really interesting yeah, chatting Thanks with a lot, you. Amy. Really good to have a chat. Thanks. And you do great work at Environment Victoria. So good luck with it all. <laughs> thanks very much. And you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. I'm Amy Mullins, the host of this show on 3RRR. You can listen in every Tuesday in Melbourne at 9am till 12pm. And if you are elsewhere, you can listen online through the Triple R website. Hope to see you again next time.